and this is Pastor Daniel McGee with Connection Church in New York City. Thank you for listening to our church's weekly podcast. We hope God uses this sermon to encourage you and to increase your faith in Him. If you'd like to know more about our church, please check out our website at ConnectionNYC.com or like us on Facebook at ConnectionNYC. Grace and peace be with you. from 1 Peter 2, 13-17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. One of the beauties of teaching through an entire letter or book like First Peter is you can't avoid difficult passages. If we were to avoid difficult passages, one about submission to national and local governments might be an easy one to avoid, right? But alas, here we are, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And as we've continued this series entitled Stranger Beings with the overarching theme that Christians are strange beings on this earth, I invite us to see how that, in the eyes of Peter, affects the way that we relate to civil and national authorities, as well as one another and our neighbors and enemies. So with that as an idea, let's jump into the sermon entitled, You Are Free. I invite you to grab the worship folder that was handed to you when you walked in or that you grabbed, and uh, there's going to be some places for fill in the blanks here in a moment to try to keep your mind sharp as we go on for these next hour or two. Just kidding, it won't be that long. <clears throat> but let's start with this idea that Katie just read from the book of First Peter. See, because now it's Katie's idea, not mine. Submitting or being subject to, for the purposes of this, uh, this sermon, it can happen in two ways, all right? So there's an idea of submission that is certainly negative and harsh. Um, the best word that I can think of that comes to mind with this type of submission would be forced submission. There is someone in power or in authority, or at least reaching or grasping for power or authority, that is forcing others to be submissive to them. An improper use of power, you might say. It's an uncomfortable type of submission. You may have found yourself in a forcibly submissive relationship at one point in time or another. And if you have ever been in a relationship that is forcibly submissive, I imagine you understand it in a way that I can only imagine. To have someone who you want 
or used to love and trust treat you as though not only are, they, are you their property, but th- that they are allowed, they feel like they have the freedom to force you around to do the things that they say to do. Usually, not for your benefit, but for their benefit. That would be forced submission. It doesn't only happen in individual relationships. It happens all over. It happens in governments. It happens in um, teams that you might be on. It happens at work on a special project team where you have one person who may just dub themselves or maybe they are actually the manager of the project and they decide that they are going to get the job done by forcing those under them to do their will, right? So forced submission can look like a bunch of different things. But know that it's there. And I want to invite you to open up your mind to the idea of another type of submission if this is new to you. Voluntary submission. There's a really important key, though, when talking about voluntary submission that we all have to understand. In order for submission to be voluntary, the person who is choosing to submit has to have trust and love toward the person that's in authority over them. Trust in this sense. The person who's being submissive has to trust that the one in authority over them or the group in authority over them is for them, not against them. In every sense. But also love. The person who's submissive voluntarily has to have a deep understanding love for the person in power over them. If they don't have trust and love, a seed can be sown in their mind that can begin to be cancerous to the entire relationship. So, with that as our um, intense diving board to jump into the sermon with, let's talk about what Peter meant when he was speaking to, again, if you haven't been here, uh, I'll give a little reminder, he's speaking to the churches dispersed in the provinces around Rome, okay, in very, very early days of Christianity. As he's speaking to them, he's reminding them of these things. One other point of clarification, some early Christians were, there was a, um, a faction starting to break off that Peter is trying to address very specifically right here. So if you're interested in why he just, it seems almost random in this, in this letter, he brings up government authorities, local and national, is because there's this little faction inside the church that's starting to think that if we are free indeed, like we just sung, then that means we are free from Caesar's reign. We are free from the emperor, and we are even free from these governors. Imagine, if you will, a Christian that early on where there were still witnesses living or at least second generation to the crucified Christ. It wouldn't take much to convince people, hey, you remember that Roman governor who crucified Christ? Christ told us we were free. So we are free from him too. So this is the faction that Peter is specifically addressing. People who feel like this freedom that Christ has given us in the spiritual realm also works 
in the physical realm, specifically as it regards to politics. Does that make sense? So here's who he's writing to. Um, Tonight, I want us to see four things. And the first one's going to happen in verses 13 through 15, what Katie just read. We'll read it one more time, the very beginning. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Point number one, if you're taking notes tonight, is that you are free to be subject to human authority. You're free to be subject to human authority. Why? Well, first, Peter says it right off the gate, for the Lord's sake. Peter says, for God's will and for his sake, you are free to be subject to these human institutions. This is that specifically addressing those people who would say, because I'm free in Christ, I'm free from government. I'm free from participating in the government reign that is currently over me. Whether that be us here in America, a Christian, an underground Christian in China, or these early Christians. Peter's saying, for the Lord's sake, you are free to be subject to human authority. <clears throat> but he makes a caveat here that it's important when we have this discussion. He says, as they are sent to punish evil and praise good. Now here are two functions of government that have lasted for centuries and centuries and centuries. When people gather together and they form societies, they tend to lift up those who do good or praise them, and they punish those who do evil or bad, either through prison or death or slavery, and they lift up those who do good, either by promotion or election or honoring them with medals or regalia. So what Peter is trying to say here is very important because this is where justice enters the narrative. We must remember this part. It's crucial to our understanding of how we are to be subject to authority above us. Peter makes it clear that the role of the authorities is a power that's given to them by God to punish evil and praise good. Those are good things. Punishing evil and praising good. Societies in general have lifted these values up as well. Obviously, not at all times. And throughout the New Testament, though, we see that when justice is being compromised by the authority in place, Christians took the right and even considered it an obligation to strive for the law of God when the law of man fell short. If you read the book of Acts, you'll find this to be the case because these men who are writing the book of Acts find themselves where quite often? In prison. Why did they find themselves in prison? Well, because they were speaking out 
either for Jesus or against those who might say you cannot speak out for Jesus. And then as we know, Paul penned many letters, the apostle, from the dungeons of prisons. And even some were stoned. So see, in those cases, the authority was punishing good and rewarding evil. I'm reminded of the time when the book of Acts records Stephen, known as the first Christian martyr, the one who died for his faith, records his stoning. And do you remember what the writer says happens after Stephen is dead and he's stoned there in the streets in public, legal execution? The stoners took their cloaks and laid them at the feet of a man named Saul. Saul, who would later have his name changed to Paul and be the great apostle who wrote over half the New Testament, was rewarded, praised, lifted up for this evil act of murder. So that government had it flipped. Peter says the government's role as given by God is to reward good and punish evil. But the government had taken that and turned it. And they were rewarding evil and punishing good. In these cases, church, it is critical that we stand on the correct side of the law of God. In order for us to know which side the law of God is on, we must do several things well. We must listen to the word of God. We must listen to those who are crying out as the oppressed. We must listen to our neighbors. Notice what we haven't done yet. We haven't spoken. We have to listen to the word of God. We have to listen to the oppressors and we have to listen to our neighbors. And most of all, we have to pray with one another. We have to listen to the word of God, listen to those who are oppressed, listen to our neighbors, and we have to pray. Several weeks ago, the great preacher, Billy Graham, died. He was lifted up and praised all over this country, even in the hall of our nation's capital, where he was only the fourth civilian to ever have his casket displayed for a few days so people could come and pay their respects. Billy Graham was a great man who preached and led many people to the word of God and to salvation. But in 2008, Billy Graham was being interviewed and he was asked about his role in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. You see, Billy Graham stepped out in the 50s and did something that made a lot of people angry because the government was saying that whites and blacks could not come together in the same space in the South. And Billy Graham said, when you come to my conventions, when you come to hear me preach, blacks and whites can come together. 1953. 
Needless to say, he ticked off a lot of people by doing that. Fast forward to the march at Selma. This is what Billy Graham brought up in this interview. He said, the biggest regret I have in my life is that when Martin Luther King Jr. called me and said, come to Selma, we need you to march. I didn't make it a priority, and I didn't do it. Now, Billy Graham later bailed Martin Luther King out of jail, and they went on to have a friendship. He acted when he felt that regret. He confessed that sin, and he turned, and he faced it square up, and he reconciled. They reconciled together. But you see, even someone who we say is as great as Billy Graham can look at the law and look at what God calls us to do and get them mixed up. He was wrestling with whether or not the law was upholding good and punishing evil or vice versa. And he said in that interview, I got it wrong. And it's the biggest regret I have to this day. But church, it doesn't have to be for us. You are not on an island making a decision by yourself. You are involved in a community of believers. And as we listen to one another and listen to our community, and especially the oppressed crying out in our community, we can then see more clearly which decisions we need to make and how we are to act when it seems like maybe the law has it flipped. Peter continues and says, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. He's saying here that your good works are to remove objections to the gospel that th- from people inside the church and non-believers. To put that right in that illustration we just had, Billy Graham's good work in going to Selma would have removed, would have put to silence the foolish ones. It's a purifying thing when you stand for truth. That's the principle here. When you stand for truth, it is purifying and it will put to silence the foolish ones around you. Obviously, if you're on social media and you talk about it there, you might think that Peter is just a bold-faced liar because there's no way anyone's ever going to be silent about it. But what Peter is saying is that when the people of God act in the will of God, even and especially when the government has it flipped, purity and truth will be seen clearly even by the most foolish of naysayers. So it is important that we don't only sit for or against the law when it is right or wrong. It is important for Christians to do good works, to be active, to be going, to be standing, to be fighting, to be loving, to be praying for, to be writing notes to, to be friending, to be inviting into their homes. 
when we believe that the law has it wrong. And it is only when we do these good works that the foolish talkers are silenced. So voluntary subjection is what he's calling for here. Subjection to authorities with your trust and love for completely in the will of God. Remember I said voluntary, voluntary subjection can only happen when you fully trust and love the one in authority? Well, God says here that when we, when we subject ourselves to the human institutions, we're not doing so for the sake of the human institutions. That is the key that unlocks for us who we need to trust and love. Does that make sense? Since he says you do this for the sake of God, not for the sake of country, we know that God is saying, I am calling the shots, ultimately. You put your trust and your love in me. This is for my sake. Not the human institution's sake. So when you think about voluntary subjection, you don't look to those in authority and say, there's no way I could ever submit to those people. There's no way I would ever lay down my life for them. I would never give up my own will for them. I don't trust them. I don't love them. God says, you're looking at the wrong person. You look to me. You put, and and you see that that is the order, what I just did with my hand. The human institution is here at a level, at our eye level, and God says, I am the one directing, and I am above the human institution. You put your love and your trust in me, and that is the only way you'll ever be able to voluntarily subject yourself to any human institution or else we'll become like those who Peter was writing to who say, we're free, of, free from Christ. Why would we do any of these things? Why would we pay our taxes to Caesar? Caesar's not gonna be here forever. God is. God says, you must subject yourself to that by looking at me. Without fear, then, without hatred, then, you can radically address the injustices that you see around you the shortfalls that you see those governments having. You can use then the privilege, the gifts that you have been given, which if you haven't been coming to a connect group, this is a great commercial for them because we had a great discussion on privilege last week. You see, when the church of God sees that it has been privileged, do you realize that something can rock your world devastating tragedy. Do you realize how much of a privilege it is to be able to go home, open up God's word, and read the words, peace that passes all understanding. The world does not have that privilege. When we are loving and trusting God as our ultimate authority, we can use our privilege that we have been given as his children to bless those around us. That first crowd we're listening to especially, the oppressed. Verses 16 and 17. These last three points are all in these verses, so don't worry. Listen to the word of the Lord. It says, live, almost like, well then, live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants 
of God. Now honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear the brother. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You see, it is only after that first section of Scripture where we learn about the sake of God and about trust and about voluntary subjection and about what it means to step outside of the law to honor the law of God. It's only when we understand all those things that we can read this and have a correct view of what it means. Honor the emperor. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Because without that, there's no way that I can ever honor everyone. It's impossible. If I don't understand that God is on the throne and he is the one who is in charge of the power and authorities on this earth, I have no reason to honor the people who offend me. I should just, I should do one of two things, depending on my personality. I should bulldoze them or I should avoid them. Neither of which are honoring because honor is a choice. Honor is active. Point number two is, uh, you can, uh, sorry, you are free to honor all people. You are free to honor all people. The key thing to remember in this, the food that you should be eating right now from the word of God that will nourish you throughout this week is that honoring people is an active endeavor. You don't honor someone without acting like it. The ways in which you honor people are endless. You can choose to honor your boss by smiling at them when they walk in the room and making eye contact and asking them how their day was and listening for the answer and not berating them in your mind as soon as they turn around and walk out. You see, the boss only sees one thing, a smile and the question. But God knows and you know what goes on in your mind when they leave. The names you call them, the things you say or think about them. Honoring is something that you have to be doing, that we have to be active in. In order to honor everyone, we must be acting on their behalf toward them. You are free now to honor all people. Honor involves being subject to people. It's not easy. And sometimes it's not fun. But there will come a time in every relationship in your life where you're going to have to submit to someone, even if they're not in authority or power over you, but just because you're friends with them. It could be something as simple as the brunch choice, right? They want to go to Flow, and you want to go to Queen's Comfort, and you're saying, you know, the line is worth it, I promise, and they're saying, no way. And finally, you can honor them by submitting and saying, I'll give up my desire, and I'll go with yours. And I'm not going to berate you about it the whole time that we're eating this gross food. You can honor in simple things like this. So although this is, is heavy and deep, especially there at the beginning, 
honoring people is not always a life or death, life or death decision. Oftentimes, it's just daily practices and daily decisions where you get the chance to lift others up higher than yourself. That's it. Number three, you are free to love one another. Love the brotherhood. Love the church is what this means. Love the fellow Christians around you. Love them. Again, it's a lot like honor. It's active. Loving one another. Excuse me, uh, the, the Bible says that Christ showed us his love in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. So I would say to us, the biblical principle of loving the brotherhood is you show your love to your Christian brothers and sisters in that while they are offending you, you give up your life for them. You show your love to your Christian brothers and sisters in that while they are disagreeing with you, you love them and give up your life for them. And the list could go on and on. But this is not, most certainly not, a love them when it's fun and easy and you're really enjoying their company. We must realize that that spectrum of love goes all the way to the times when they're offensive, when they're in sin, and you don't know how to bring it up when you're protecting them from that and when they're attacking you through another person because they didn't even come to you first. Those are the times when we are reminded to love the brotherhood. Can you imagine making a decision to stand with the oppressed against your government alone without your brothers and sisters in Christ? No. Why is loving the brotherhood important? It's because when stuff gets real, you need them, and they need you. And what the word of God shows us is, stuff is real all the time. We are just blind to most of the stuff. Your brothers and your sisters are the ones who open your eyes, who take the blinders off. They're a gift from the Holy Spirit. Love them, church. And finally, number four, this ties it all together. You are free to fear God. Take a breath. You're free to fear God. Why can you fear God? Let's read Psalm 23. This is usually read at funerals, but I encourage you, if you'd like to take a challenge, to memorize this scripture. It's not a funeral scripture. It's great at funerals, but this is a day-to-day life verse. Listen to this. Why would I fear God? How is that freedom? Listen to who he is. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters and he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You are free to fear, to trust, and to love God as your supreme authority because he is the perfect authority. He is what you're dreaming of. He's better than your wildest dreams. Jess told us beautifully how she had dreams and she would wake up and she, she said, I, I was comforted. She had community. I almost thought she was about to say, I woke up and I, I felt like I had just had dinner with my best friends. That's the, that's the vibe I got from what she was saying. God is better than that. that what she experienced in that dream is a little tiny taste of his goodness of how perfect he is in his authority over you and I. So you are free to fear him because he does not use his authority to attack or to steal or to oppress or to shush or to abuse or to neglect. He uses it for your flourishing for your good and in community submitting to the human authorities understanding that God is in charge we can sit down at a table and dine together you and I while the battle is raging on the field in our midst laughing, being merry and carrying on. Not because we don't have a care in the world, but because the one who holds the world cares for us. And you'll dwell in his house forever. Church, as we close, we must see this scripture in the context of the salvation that Jesus has given us. That because Jesus submitted himself to God his Father in a way that you and I, very obviously because of our presence here tonight, have not been asked to submit ourselves even to the point of death, death on a cross, Because Jesus submitted himself, trusting in the sovereign will of God as he prayed in the garden saying, God, if you could remove this cup from me, please take it. Please remove this thing that I have to do. Remove this pain. Take it away. But nevertheless, nevertheless, your will be done. Because he did that, you are free to do the same.
This will not only free you and I to live a hope-filled life. Psalm 23, your cup overflows. It will also give you discernment and it will give you courage. When the human institutions get things flipped. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with the injustices that we see going on in our world today, the fact that we have a huge portion of our population in this country, especially here in New York City, who are immigrants, people of color, people living below the poverty line, who are crying out, saying we are being oppressed. God, I pray that we would have courage like others do and like many do not. To honor them by acting on their behalf. God, I pray that you would give us courage tomorrow morning when we walk into our place of business that we hate the people next to us. That you would convict us tonight and we would bring to the altar confession of that hatred. We would walk out of here filled, our cup filled to the top with love for them. Love that we cannot muster but you can fill us with. And I pray that we would walk into that office tomorrow with the intention to honor them. And at that 10 a.m. coffee break when they've already gotten on our nerves, I pray that we would re-intend to honor them again. God, for those in this room right now who are being forced to submit their marriage at their work, in their apartment, God, I pray that you just like you did with Jess. Would you wrap your arms around them? Would you bring them out of that place of abuse and of submission? Would you protect them? Put the people of God around them to serve as a prayer warriors, to fight for them in your name for your sake. God, would you free the captive tonight? We are grateful. We are honored that you have showed us honor. God, I pray that we would live as people who are free to show honor to everyone, to love the brotherhood, to honor the emperor, and to fear you. In Jesus' name, amen.